Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by 417 Helmets. It's collectible helmets and more. Many football helmets from just about every dead and forgotten football league you've ever heard of. Also, many baseball helmets from the Negro Leagues, as well as custom helmets. You want your business or your organization represented in a cool mini helmet format? Hey, check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. Rudy Glenn. Here's Glenn with the shot and the deflection. It's in the net. So we can go back to we can go back to tension and excitement time now because now the pressure is really on Bob Yarushi, who is the last kicker in this series of five kicks. Bob Yarushi, he is from Toronto. Here comes the kick. If he makes it, they're still tied. If he misses, it's over. Chicago has won. The Chicago Sting has won their first professional sports championship since 1963. This group of men under the leadership of Willie Roy takes it to a shootout. Rudy Glenn scores, Bob Yarushi misses, and the Sting are the 1981 Soccer Bowl champions. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, all right now. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. Welcome to the proceedings. We like to call it Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, on a weekly basis, I might add, what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for joining us uh, for this week's uh, fun and frivolity. And I think we'll have a little accent on the frivolity. Uh, it's certainly going to be fun, of course, as we try to make it each and every week. But uh, uh, you, uh, we get lots of mail, shall we say. And uh, you never know who's going to be listening uh, to this little show. You never know how they find out about this show. They, you never know uh, what sort of spurs their interest or whatever. But uh, a couple of weeks back, we got just a very sort of um, uh, a, a lovely uh, but very quick uh, and short note and uh, it was uh, just titled in the uh, the subject line there, Great History, period. That was it. <laughs> and uh, this gentleman uh, who kindly reached out to us uh, said that he had heard a couple of really old episodes of ours uh, from our very first year, as a matter of fact, five some odd years ago, uh, our great conversations with the uh, great Michael Menchel, which we uh, reposted uh, a few weeks back as a um, an archive special. And um, Terry Hansen uh, from uh, back in the day, uh, we talked about Atlanta Chiefs and that kind of stuff from from that episode. And the guy's name is Charlie Evranian. And uh, in his little note, he basically said, hey, heard the, those episodes with two of my old friends. And uh, and then he attached a couple of pictures and, and an article or two. And uh, the curiosity uh, thread just uh, had to be pulled from there. Uh, the picture. Charlie sent was of uh, Ralph Gar from 1976. Uh, it's a very famous and iconic picture. Minnie Minoso is behind him, a Chicago White Sox game. And uh, they're both wearing, or, or maybe they're more famous for what they're not wearing. They're wearing shorts, Chicago White Sox shorts. Charlie Avranian was uh, part of the front office of the Chicago White Sox at that time during that uh Quite bold and extraordinary time when Bill Vec owned the team in the mid-70s. 
uh, the dramatic change of the uniforms and the logo back in the day, uh, some of which still uh, is very much fondly remembered, the stylized socks across the top, sort of in a modern day, at least for this 1970s. Uh, but uh, this picture, of course, it's almost iconic at this point. Uh, the handful of games that the Chicago White Sox played in shorts. Uh, Charlie was part of that mixture as to how that came about. And that's just kind of the midpoint of this amazing sports history story of Charlie of Rainian. Uh, after doing some more research, we found that our pal uh, Andy Crossley uh, did a uh, an interview with Charlie back in 19, no, 19, 19, I'm really dating myself, 2018. And uh, it became a, a great uh, uh, shorthand for uh, what just had to be uh, a guest spot here on this on this little show. And uh, we're going to get into all kinds of crazy forgotten sports stuff, uh, all packaged up in the one dynamo presence of one Charlie Evranian coming up in a few minutes. The Chicago Sting being a uh, prime example of uh, of Charlie's uh, sports history. It's it's frankly the first chapter of, of a multifaceted, almost renaissance uh, career. Charlie went on to uh, run uh, various state fairs and uh, was in the Ohio state government and uh, all kinds of charitable work and stuff. I mean, this, this is a guy who's done so many different things in his life, but his the first, I would say, third or maybe quarter of his professional career was almost exclusively devoted to minor and in some cases, major league professional sports stuff, a bunch of which sadly, but but happily for us uh, are no longer around and thus qualifying to uh, talk about this, uh, about that stuff on this little show. The Chicago Sting, as you heard on that clip, um, was uh, the place Charlie went to. He became president of the Chicago Sting uh, from the Chicago White Sox experience uh, and was there and uh, and part of the, uh, the dynamic that uh, ultimately took the Lee Stern-owned team, uh, it uh, having been one of the longer-lasting teams in the NASL, but frankly not really tremendously uh, fan-supported. But 1981, and by the way, speaking as a Cosmos fan uh, growing up in the day, the Chicago Sting always had the Chicago, excuse me, had the uh, Cosmos number, it seemed. And, and that clip was uh, probably the ultimate expression uh, of that, uh, shall we call it, mini-dominance that the Sting had. That was the... Um, well, depending on when you were listening, uh, what was the date of that? Well, uh, you're probably yelling into your devices now. It was September 26, 1981, live uh, on – well, it wasn't live. But that's the key. From Exhibition Stadium in Toronto was Soccer Bowl 81. That's where the Chicago Sting climbed the mountain and knocked off the Mighty Cosmos, the first and only time that the uh, Mighty Cosmos lost – in an NASL Outdoor Championship match. Uh, it was a 0-0 tie, and they won it in a shootout, the Sting did. And uh, yes, yours truly was there, 36,000 or so in the stadium, and uh, every one of them seemed to be a Chicago Sting fan. Certainly after the game, that's for sure, because nobody expected it. But Charlie Everingham, Everingham, Everanian, Everingham, I'm thinking of of, of uh, auto racing, and, and, and uh, the, the name uh, just kind of confuses. Charlie Everanian, as president of that team, uh, you know, that year, 1981, it was just a, a gigantic ascendance uh, for that team in the um, pantheon of Chicago sports uh, lore. Um, Chicago's a tough sports town, no, no doubt about it, and arguably that's you know, the first six or seven years of the Sting's existence, 
despite everything that uh, that uh, Lee Stern and his friends could could throw at the market. Uh, you, you couldn't find a guy who was more visible than Lee Stern uh, and, and all kinds of promotions and, and, and uh, locations and all kinds of stuff. But it all came together. Uh, and, and Charlie was at the uh, at the helm at that point. And boy, what a parade they had uh, a couple of days later in Chicago. I see it, people still remember it. Jane Byrne and the the trophy and it was a ticker tape parade and it was the first time in in I, just, uh, more than a dozen or almost two, two dozen years at that point that Chicago had won a uh, a major sports title of any sort. So Chicago was in a partying mood and the Sting were the uh, the recipients. I jammed a, a reception at the at O'Hare Airport where they came back for the game. Blah blah blah. Um, but that clip was from ABC Sports and that was uh, a guest we'd like to have at some point. Vern Lundquist, a young and uh, uh, debonair and uh, a very soccer uh, infused uh, background of of Vern Lundquist with Paul Gartner, one of our uh, previous uh, episode uh, guests as well. It's a great episode to to, to spin up for yourselves. Um, kind of announcing there the uh, the dramatic uh, win of the Chicago Sting. Now, uh, sadly, uh, the people in Chicago and New York were not able to watch that game live. It was on a Saturday night on ABC and. Uh, ABC at that point uh, was in the third of its three-year uh, deal with the North American Soccer League, and um, they had kind of had enough. ABC had the the, the uh, games that they were broadcasting uh, on weekends in the middle of the summer, very irregularly, I might add, uh, were not drawing well. Now, by today's standards, they were drawing gigantic numbers, but uh, back in the day, uh, a three or a four rating on a Sunday afternoon wasn't cutting it. But... Um, uh, in Chicago and New York, uh, the ABC owned and operated stations uh, made their case and at least got the game to be played in a tape delay fashion after Fantasy Island and the Love Boat were on. So you know where the uh, priorities were for ABC at that time in 1981. The rest of the country didn't get to see the game until Sunday afternoon, the day after. Um, and it's a shame because it's it's probably one of the more exciting um and consequential uh, games in in the uh, NASL's history, and uh, you can't beat it for drama. Even though it was a zero zero regular uh, time and overtime um, uh, result before they went to the shootout, and the shootout, of course, was dramatic too. It was a hell of a zero zero game. It's one of those games where nil nil was wow wow, um, and it's it's worth a watch if you find it on YouTube and stuff. But Charlie was there; he was president at the time. But that was uh, preceded by a whole bunch of minor league exploits. Uh, including uh, being in the farm system, working uh, general managing and managing uh, teams in the Atlanta Braves farm system. That's where he uh, met Terry Hansen along the way, uh, working with the Atlanta Braves uh, uh, at the uh, at the top level. But places like the Greenwood Braves and the single A minor leagues back in the day. Uh, Charlie was uh, the manager and uh, co-owner and chief cook and bottle washer of the uh, Richmond, Virginia, American Hockey League team known as the Richmond Robins. Uh, he was part of that mix. Um, Bill Vack enters the story. Pat Williams is part of the story. Um, and after even the sting, the major indoor soccer league is part of the story. And, and in particular, a story that you must stick around for. We've never talked about it before. Uh, it's rarely, I don't, I don't think I've even heard it anywhere else. It's the incredible story of the Phoenix Inferno of the MISL. And let's put it this way. You think ownership was a shaky proposition in lots of these startup leagues and challenger leagues we talk about and stuff. World Football League, great example. Well, you, uh, you, wait till we hear the the 
the source of the money and the operation behind the Phoenix Inferno of the MISL. Joe Garagiola makes an appearance in that in this story. So does uh, Stan Musial. Uh, it, it's a, a really, really interesting. And to top it all off, we even give us a, a subtle hint into uh, the uh, the the end of a thing called Team America from the NASL back in 1983, and 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 the role of Charlie and even Earl Foreman, the founder of the uh, MISL, why he and they were involved in the Team America story in the North American Soccer League. We get into all of that stuff and much, much more. This is a wild ride through lots of things in minor league and major league professional sports forgottenness with our guest this week, Charlie Evranian. It's a fun one, and it's coming up for you in a few moments' time. How about some promotional stuff? Let's let's reminisce about some of these uh, great teams that we're going to be sort of traversing. How about uh, our pal uh, Kevin Schultz and uh, VintageIceHockey.com? Lots of great stuff there. If you remember teams from various minor league hockey situations, whether they're around today or long forgotten, AHL, IHL, USHL, pick a something HL, they're probably there for you at VintageHockey.com. Promo code good seats for 10% off all of your purchases, and including the uh, really cool looking and kind of sort of uh, um, curious and uh, up to possibly no good looking uh, Richmond Robin logo. Uh, let's remember, shall we, uh, the 1971 to 76 American Hockey League Richmond Robins that our guest Charlie Avranian was president and, and head of. You can find great. Uh, wear and mugs and uh, uh, all kinds of other things with that great Richmond Robbins white, gray, red, and yellow logo at vintagehockey.com. And you'll find lots of other great team logos there too and and, and merch uh, for those logos. And again, that promo code for you there is uh, good seats for 10% off your, all of your purchases there. And last but not least, how about uh, tooling over to oldschoolshirts.com? Yeah, our pal P.F. Wilson in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio. Promo code for you there at oldschoolshirts.com is good seats for 10% off all your purchases there. And there you will find uh, a whole bunch of stuff, including aforementioned a Chicago Sting. You can get the uh, Chicago Sting uh, classic logo with that sort of um, uh, the Sting movie, uh, sort of a, a angry bee with the soccer ball in it. You can also find uh, the Soccer Bowl 81 logo T-shirt at OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS. Uh, it's a great red, white, and blue Soccer Bowl uh, logo. They were doing some some darn good logos back in the early 80s in the NASL. And also, you will find, believe it or not, on uh, OldSchoolShirts.com in the MISL, MISL section or in the Phoenix, Arizona section, the Phoenix Inferno. Yes, three years in the MISL. And you may have remembered a game on the old USA Network or two. When they scored a goal, you saw those inferno-like uh, flames, shoots of flames come up from the from the goal line, uh, behind the goal. Uh, they didn't need a, a goal judge. They just, they just used those cannons of fire behind the scenes. Anyway, all that for you and more at OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS. So thank you to both of those uh, great sites for their uh, continued sponsorship of the show. We appreciate it. And now, without further ado, let's get into all kinds of shenanigans with a, a one-of-a-kind guy, a renaissance guy, 
And like I said, uh, the first part of his uh, professional career, it started way back when as uh, basically a, a sort of an intern, if you will, the, the old Detroit Tigers in baseball. And it kind of morphed from there. Here's our conversation with the great Charlie Evranian. This is a hoot. Please, as always, enjoy. So let me let's uh, let's back up because um, I, my mind immediately goes to when when seeing a bit of your background and and understanding sort of where you sort of have fit into um, you know our little realm of forgottenness and defunctness and stuff. Um, I, the the term MISL mafia comes to mind and, and it's it's frankly something just popped into my head only because people like Doug Verb and Michael Menchel uh, and a few others who have sort of either. Uh, it deeply or uh, casually uh, sort of sailed across those uh, major indoor soccer waters. And and you were no stranger to that, but I'm probably jumping ahead in the story. But um, there seems to have been, I guess, to start, I guess, a, a band of merry men. And I guess they were mostly men that uh, kind of were behind the scenes of this crazy indoor soccer league back in the day. And, and you were, I guess, one of them. Well, I was recruited by Earl Foreman. Earl and I went back, go back to when he owned the Virginia Squires and I was running a minor league hockey team in Richmond, Virginia. And Earl approached me about coming on board with the Squires and uh, we couldn't work things out. So after I uh, got involved in soccer, Earl reached out to me a few years later and said, look, I'd like for you to come with me as deputy commissioner. And he painted a future and this, that, and the other. And uh, we sat down and worked things out. And it was a neat group of folks. All right. Well, let me back up. How how are you in the minor league hockey racket in the first place? How did you get there? And then we'll get to Earl because he's an enigma all of all himself. Well, uh, I was, started with the Atlanta Braves in their managing, general managing, their, in their minor league farm system. And then after two years at Greenwood, South Carolina, the Braves moved me to Richmond, Virginia. And I'm sorry, this was Braves. a career calling, say coming out of college or high school or, or, or what? Actually, I started my career in sports in 1962 in Detroit, wiping off seats and working in the clubhouse. And uh, just did a lot of, Odd jobs uh, for the Detroit Tigers. The old Tiger Stadium, huh? Oh, boy, that was quite the place. So, okay, so how does that morph then from sort of those, you know, I'm guessing that was as a child, sort of those those sort of uh, odd jobs and in, in, uh, in the stadium stuff. How does that morph career-wise into a path where you get into the Braves organization? And what year are we talking there? I, let me see, I went to school in Atlanta for some radio television broadcasting. And I wrote the Tigers for a job in 1967 to see if I could come back to Detroit. And there was nothing available. So I figured as long as I'm in Atlanta, let me go knock on somebody's door with the Atlanta Braves. And uh, lo and behold, I landed a job in spring training with the Atlanta Braves. And uh, one day, Paul Richards came by, and I said, Mr. Richards, how does one make a career out of baseball? He says, I'll come by and talk to you one day, son. Well, he did. A couple of weeks later, Paul came by with his golf cart, 
And he said, okay, I'll remember you. Then in the winter of 1967, I get a call from Eddie Robinson offering me a general manager's job of a team in the Western Carolinas League in 1968. I was 19 years old. And that was the, what uh, division or class was that of the Braves at that point? That was uh, Class A. The Braves were one of the only teams in baseball that owned all of their farm clubs, and Greenwood was uh, Class A. So this is essentially fresh straight out of high school, and you're just you're you're already starting to do the do the hustle, so to speak, if you will. Uh, in right, right out of high school. During high school, I was bat boy for the Tigers, and then right after high school, I had a brief stint with the Detroit Free Press delivering advertising. Then the Tigers called and offered me a job as an office boy. And I got to learn the ropes of all the different departments at Tiger Stadium. Then I went away to school, and that's when I hooked up with the Braves. Interesting. And and what was your first job or set of jobs then? Uh, I mean, you're, you're essentially um, going right out to the farm. Uh, that's not even in the central office, right? So I'm guessing you were really kind of learning on the job and maybe not without a lot of, uh, uh, shall we say, day-to-day support or uh, guardrails, so to speak. Well, I spent a month in Atlanta as uh, the business people firmed up the franchise in Greenwood and took full advantage of that time to meet with every department head, learn the ins and outs of ticketing, public relations, marketing, advertising, radio, television, you name the department, accounting. And then the day came and they said, okay, mister, time for you to head down to Greenwood. And we had about eight or 10 weeks to start up a franchise from scratch. Actually, the field was uh, under construction in Greenwood, South Carolina, and uh, had a good tutor and mentor. And Lou Fitzgerald was our manager. And had some uh, pretty decent ball players on that Greenwood team. We won the first half championship and then played Spartanburg, my friend Pat Williams' team. And we won the Western Carolina League uh, championship in 1968 and then again in 1969. Okay, so is this dumb luck or uh, true uh, uh, just uh, uh, knowledge and wisdom beyond your years at this point? Well, uh I'm not going to call it dumb luck because I had a lot of good mentors shoveling information my way. Uh, Minor league general managers have very little to say over player personnel. And Atlanta stocked that team with some good players at that time. Players like Dusty Baker in his rookie year right out of high school. Uh, Bob Didier, a catcher, Earl Williams, who went on to become American League uh, Rookie of the Year. And uh, we had some good ball players. This is also uh, in late 1960s Atlanta and or Deep South, right? So I'm also guessing, um, you know, some real raw, challenging, uh, lingering, uh, and certainly given the explosive times in the late 60s around racial issues as, as well, Um I'm sure more than a few uh, stories, uh, maybe some whimsical, but probably a lot of them maybe not so, uh, about some of those players and then some. Well, coming from Detroit, I didn't have any racial bias. I grew up with a lot of people of color, 
And it was not a problem for me. It was just a matter of adapting in the city that we were in. But on one particular road trip to Rock Hill, South Carolina, our bus pulls up and the general manager comes out to greet us. And uh, he says, I'm, I'm sorry, you've got some people of color and black players on your team and you can't stay here. I said, well, I guess like the whole league will pull out of your hotel. He said, no, they, they won't do that. I said, well, I'm going to go make some phone calls. And if you don't want to accept my players, I'm sure the other general managers don't want to stay at your hotel either. And Earl Williams from Montclair, New Jersey, was front and center for that argument. Long and short of it, we made peace with the general manager, and uh, he made an exception, he said. Wink, wink, I guess. Um, wink, wink. And we, um, there was only one hotel in Greenwood, South Carolina, and that was a Holiday Inn. That was not a problem for us. Finding housing for the uh, players of color uh, was not a real challenge because the community stepped up and we found a place for most players called the Oak Grove Cafe which wasn't too far from the ballpark uh, that the players could walk if need be and their meals were taken care of. But we wanted to make sure that the players felt comfortable, needed, and uh, were at ease to play baseball. All right. So give me a sense then, or give our audience a sense of what general managing or, or uh, front office managing a team like this entails and you encounter is that you know promotions ticket sales uh, operational stuff at the stadium probably a little bit of everything i'm assuming in today's world you walk into a minor league operation at a class a level and you're probably going to find 15 18 20 people doing all the different jobs that a minor league general manager did i had a part-time secretary full-time groundskeeper, and that was it. You did it all. So we uh, worked out a deal with the radio station. You sold tickets. You spoke at different clubs. You sold advertising. You made arrangements for food, bus trips, uh, transferring players in and out of town. You were uh, pretty much a one-man band. And and uh, when does one tire of that? And or what what are you thinking about career wise at the time? Obviously, in the moment, you're doing pretty darn well for yourself right out of the gate, right? Which is probably more rare than common. Um, well, but is, is baseball didn't hold it for you at least in the in the near term, though, right? You were there for too long. Uh, I was uh, starting at sixty two through seventy in baseball then there was an opportunity in richmond virginia they were building a new coliseum and i was somewhat of a rink rat and i was approached to uh be the business manager for the brand new hockey team in town we were affiliate of the philadelphia flyers and it was quite challenging to sell ice hockey in the south but we did it and we had a lot of fun all right, so how do you then, make, uh, how do you make the jump to hockey? I mean, obviously you've got some familiarity with it, and but it's an it's you're trading one sort of minor league uh, development system for another. Um, how does one make that jump? Given, 
I guess almost a almost a decade, I guess, or so in baseball. Like, how, how do you get the gumption and or the courage to kind of not only jump from what I'm guessing was sort of a, a stable and progressing kind of career in baseball into a new sport, a new market, a new everything? Frankly, Jim, basically, when when you're running a team. The only thing that really changes are the numbers and the game. You still have to have concessions, radio, television, advertising. The size of your staff grows. Uh, you travel uh, by plane instead of bus. But it's the same basics wherever you go, major league or minor league. But the times have changed. For instance, at the Richmond Braves, there were one, two, three, Four full-time people. I think if you look at the the current team that's in Richmond now, they probably have 25 or 30 folks working at the ballpark. It's it's become more sophisticated. The demands are greater now. But um, let me see. With the hockey team, there were four of us in the front office. That was it. Just four people doing marketing and sales and all of it. All of it. Yep. Yep. We had a small group that worked with the owner of the team. They called themselves the group. They were a bunch of volunteers that we tapped into that had marketing and sales experience that would meet with us weekly and give us ideas and show us how to execute things around town. And uh, we even televised games in uh, Richmond. All right, so so give me a sense of what Richmond is like, both not only the, the the team, but but this brand new arena at the time, which was called what the Richmond Coliseum. I'm guessing, yeah. Very good, Tim. Richmond Thank, Coliseum. Not a hard, not a hard guess, frankly. But sometimes you never know. Uh, I, <laughs> but this was so you were the the Robins were a brand new franchise in the AHL or relocated. Relocated from Quebec. They were the Quebec Aces that relocated to Richmond. And we had a name the team contest. And it was juried by the Richmond newspapers. And even though the name of our owner was last name was Robbins, the best name that came up was the Richmond Robin, <laughs> meaning the bird. And uh, the research showed us that there was only one other team in professional sports named the Robins, and that goes back to Brooklyn, New York. There was a baseball team called the Brooklyn Robins Absolutely. at the time. And I, I think that so, I think either directly or indirectly evolved into the Dodgers and then what's now the L.A. Dodgers, if you sort of go through all the branches. Yeah, and we um, – it was, it was an interesting experience, especially traveling with the team and uh, learning how other coliseums work so I could come back and uh, help educate the people at the coliseum for quick turnarounds so it wouldn't take several days uh, to go from ice to basketball to a concert. So uh, the owner sent me to Boston, and that's really where I learned a lot about turning around and going from one sport to the other from hockey to basketball and vice versa. And then we did the same thing in Chicago when we were in the MISL and NASL for indoor soccer, covering the ice with home sole, putting down a carpet and then ripping it up. And the Bulls would play at night or the Blackhawks would play at night. 
All right, I'm going to get to Chicago in a minute, but before we get there, I, 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 I want to go back to, so you're, you're now, though, you're the main tenants, though, I'm guessing, with the then-fledgling ABA Virginia Squires, aforementioned, the Earl Foreman uh, entourage there, but I guess also college basketball, too, right? Richmond, VCU, probably. Well, Richmond had just opened up a brand-new facility as well. VCU was using the facility on occasion. But the Virginia Squires, history will tell the story that they were a regional basketball team, which was something unique at the time for a professional team. They played in Richmond, Hampton, Norfolk, and Roanoke. And um, that's where I got to meet Earl Foreman. Interesting. So uh, only a certain number of those games were being played or shared, if you will, in the Richmond uh, uh, Coliseum. Um, and, uh, I'm guessing this was, so if, if memory serves, uh, the Squires actually got their start as the Oakland Oaks. And we've had Pat Boone on this show talking about those interesting two years, but, but the Washington caps is what they became in the year prior, I think to, uh, the Virginia Squires. I, I'm guessing maybe this regional concept was sort of born, maybe sort of emanated out of the Washington DC experience prior, right? Well, actually, I want, I want to get back on track. The Virginia Squires were basketball. The Oakland Oaks were hockey that Charlie Finley had no, and moved around. Uh, I'm talking about the uh, Oakland, uh, Oakland Oaks of the ABA. Okay, Oakland Oaks of the ABA. And then I guess Earl Foreman and his guys bought the franchise. That's right. And, and moved it into uh, the Richmond market. Earl was not unfamiliar with sports because he and his brother-in-law were involved with the Philadelphia Eagles, then later the, the Flyers in Philadelphia. And Earl, some of his history goes to the Baltimore Bullets where he was involved and then sold, I believe, that to Abe Poland, if memory serves me right. Yeah, and I think where I was going with that was that the Caps, not the not to be confused with the Washington Capitals of the current NHL, but the Caps were the one year in between the Oakland uh, two-year experience in the ABA and what became the uh, Virginia Squires. And my guess is that's around the time where uh, Earl was, uh, 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 I guess, trying to right the ship, if you will, that team was not drawing in D.C., really. Uh, and I think perhaps maybe it was sort of the gateway to this uh, Virginia concept that you're mentioning before, which, you know, in some respects is either ahead of its time. Uh, I would argue, you know, uh, the Carolina Panthers of the NFL today, probably very regional uh, in their, you know, obviously domiciled in Charlotte. But, you know, they, they really do fancy themselves as marketing to the entirety of, of North Carolina and even South Carolina for that matter. But yet, at the same time, also quite a folly, right? Because, you know, it's, it's hard enough to get people to come to a fledgling league. And we talked to the the late, great Dennis Murphy on a couple of occasions about the ABA and the origins of that. And, and he's, you know, hustler number one, right? I mean, you're trying to, you're, you're truly trying to get people to come to a, a game in a new league and see these new players in this new thing. That's not the NBA, let alone try to get them to go to a couple of different arenas and try to remember which arena they're playing in. That's gotta be doubly hard. Well, Earl asked me to become his marketing director with the Virginia Squires, and I turned him down at the time. 
So would this be simultaneous with your ice hockey stuff, or you would have had to make no, the jump? No, 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 no. He wanted me to come with him full time. Matter of fact, his general manager housed an office in the Richmond Coliseum, and it's Johnny Kerr, the former Chicago Bull. Sure. We became good friends at the time, and Johnny's the one that came to me, and he said, Earl would like for you to go to dinner with him, and uh, he wants to offer you a job. So uh, we went to dinner, and we talked, and I said, uh, Earl, that's not for me. And he says, well, what job do you want? I said, Earl, I don't want to sound braggadocious, but I'd like to run your entire organization for you. He said, how am I supposed to tell my investors that I've turned a multi-million dollar sports team over to a 20-something? I said, just tell him he's good. He knows what the heck he's doing. I mean, I was a little brash and cocky at the time, but uh, I felt confident that I could do it. Wow. Uh, well, that clearly puts you on the on on his memory books, right? Uh, for uh, for for down the road. Um, so, h- how does the AHL thing play out? And and I, I get a sense that um, well, how long were you in, in in Richmond, and then how do you then get to Chicago? Because I think that was your next stop, wasn't it? Yes, next stop uh, was Chicago, and it was the Paul Richards connection after Bill Veck bought the team. And I called Paul and I said, Paul, I'm ready to get back into baseball. He says, well, I'm going to tell Vec all about you. And as soon as the deal gets done, give him a call. So the deal got done in late 1985. And I called Bill on a regular basis and we set up an interview in Chicago and the rest is history. Uh, 75, I think, right? Uh, yeah, you're right. I said 85. I apologize. That's all right. Yes, I just I didn't, want to miss ten, I didn't want to miss those 10 years because there are a couple of questions I've got for you there. Um, oh, okay. But, <laughs> go for it. But, um, okay, but describe for our audience, and I mean, most people listen to the show know who Bill Veck was, but, you know, for the uninitiated or the youngins out there, I mean, um, I, what's the impetus for you to call your friend knowing that a guy named Bill Veck is buying the White Sox? Well, to me, Bill Veck, I had read his books. He was the master showman. And um, that was one of the best angles I had to get back into sports was back through Paul Richards. And uh, the White Sox were a big market. And I was ready to rejuvenate my career in baseball again. And uh, Bill Bill was a very liberal owner. Very, he was uh, a guy that wanted to have fun, and that uh, that transcended to his son Mike, who's written a book about baseball called Fun. So we had a lot of fun in Chicago. It was uh, considered the world's largest outdoor saloon. But you, you also Park. you also knew though that Bill Veck was, um, how can I best describe this? Not sort of universally loved by the uh, uh, the bulk of the owners in, in Major League Baseball, especially those who came from money or looked at baseball as more of a dalliance uh, from their uh, their other business pursuits and whatnot. I mean, Bill Veck was sort of almost an originalist in that he was only a baseball guy, right? So not as uh, deeply pocketed by any means, uh, certainly a lot more showy, perhaps brash, depending on your perspective. Um, but th- that that feels to me, uh, in uh, if I'm putting words in your mouth, uh, more of the allure, frankly, than than anything else to work with. Him. Well, that was 
that was part of it. Uh, Pat Williams and I started out in the business. I did in 1968. All right, Pat, I'm sorry. Pat, let me stop you there. Describe who Pat Williams is because he's an important Pat guy. Pat Williams just retired as the co-founder of the Orlando Magic. Pat started out uh, as a minor league baseball player in the Phillies organization, ran the Spartanburg Phillies, and he went to the Philadelphia 76ers, Chicago Bulls, Atlanta Hawks, and then helped Paul was a co-founder of the Orlando Magic, and Pat's been somewhat of a big brother mentor and was uh, an acolyte of Bill Vex, and I knew this. So I called Pat, and he says, by all means, go to work for Bill. You can learn so much, and it'll just be a boost for your career. And uh, that was just a reassuring factor, but... Uh, to be back with uh, Paul Richards was always fun. So uh, we made the leap. Okay. I, I want to get to your next stop uh, in, a, in a second because it's really important and obviously more the, the, the bullseye for our, our sort of, sort of uh, area of focus. But I cannot uh, allow you to uh, go any further without talking about sort of the White Sox in this period of time. We're talking, what, 75, 76, 77-ish? Um, Correct. And uh, that was uh, – describe for our audience a bit about sort of what Vec and you were sort of doing and bringing to the table because you were breathing and injecting – I wouldn't call it new life, but maybe it was – a different sensibility, shall we say, to the White well, Sox at that time a in visual ways, in promotional ways, in all kinds of ways, maybe a little bit of a before and after kind of thing maybe you could for our audience to know. Because we talked about online a little bit of something in particular that stood out and still stands out to this day, even though it was for a very, very short, note the word, period of time. Well, my first night out for dinner with Bill was with an entourage of close to 20 people. Uh, we went to a, a neat uh, rib joint in uh, Chicago, and Bill said, sit next to me. And he says, Charles, we haven't made all the changes we want to make. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be intimidated by the new folks that come in. He says, I don't want you to ever feel intimidated. Do what you believe is right. So I started doing things that were right, that were a little unorthodox for some of the people at the ballpark. Such as? Such as, Bill asked me to do a complete critique of the ballpark operation. Every, this is the old, the old Kreisky Park with uh, yep. its many layers of, of decades of paint and, and, you know, not the most modern facility, even in the 70s. Well, I did that critique, wrote it up, and somehow the critique got leaked, and I wasn't a very popular guy because I was pretty critical of things that needed to be done at the ballpark uh, by a lot of the staff, not so much the baseball staff, but the staff in general that uh, did the day-to-day -day at the ballpark from cleaning to plumbing to electrical to on-field. And um, I spoke the truth. Bill said, that's what I wanted you to do. Then they started making changes on that side. Uh, I, I started 
Bill had me even sell television time for a while when things weren't going well. But uh, my primary function was in the farm department. I was, uh, if you want to call him, uh, the assistant farm director. But all of us with the White Sox had two jobs. We had a day job, and then we had a night job. And my night job was sitting next to Bill with three telephones and a walkie-talkie and doing his bidding, whatever needed to be done at the ballpark. Interesting. So it was almost like a, an assistant to the president, so to speak, uh, by night. Well, it was in a, in a titular position, but everybody had dual jobs. During the day, you might have sold tickets, but at night, you may have run the scoreboard or an assistant to the PR guy. Um, this is how you really learned. We were young and hungry, the new bunch that came in. Where did this young and hungry bunch come from? Did they self-select and reach out and, and just travel and, and, and show up at his doorstep? Or, or were there other people that he corralled into the mix? or like Who were your peers, so to speak, and where were they coming from? Well, Roland Heeman was already there as general manager. He brought in a new traveling secretary, uh, Glenn Rosenbaum. Glenn was a batting practice pitcher, was in the White Sox organization. Most of the young group came in via Mike Veck and Rudy Schaefer. Rudy was uh, Bill's right-hand man for many years with many ventures, and they put together a group called Rudy's Rascals. And they did most of the selling of tickets and groups and uh, keeping things together on the sales side of things. Tell me some of the uh, more memorable uh, promotional things that either you were part of creating or helping execute during during your time. I know you, you left before uh, 1979's infamous uh, disco demolition, which I don't think many people want to necessarily take any credit for but uh before that though uh a couple of uniform things and some and some other other craziness there that weren't historically socks things until you guys arrived yeah one of the things that i was responsible for bill asked me if i could come up with some form of a sliding pad that the players could roll up in their socks and slide on when they were wearing shorts. That was one thing, and it was a matter of testing, uh, cutting up some different pieces of foam rubber and putting them in there. Probably the the, the most innovative thing on the baseball side uh, was an electric jacket for, um, oh, geez. We made one for Brian Downing. And then we made one for a left-handed pitcher. He calls me at home and he says, Charles, you know, the team's going out to the West Coast, to Oakland, and it's going to be a little chilly out there. Um, I've got an idea for a jacket for a pitcher. Do you think that you can make one up like this? So we started getting people up. We got a hold of a, a pitcher's jacket. And uh, we got the electrician there, went out to a drugstore. Uh, got a, a heating pad. We had that put into the shoulder and around the scapula and the elbow. And then we had the electrician come in and uh, wire in a plug with a 100-foot cord. And we made it to the plane by noon the following day to go out to the West Coast. 
So it sounds like you're sort of it's almost like a, a an evolution of an electric blanket yet yeah, but for a pitcher to keep keep warm in a jacket form. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it was. We made two of those up, one for a left-hander and one for a right-hander. I was not involved too much with the on-field gags and stunts as Bill would call them. I was involved in um some of the skullduggery behind the scenes, one particular thing, uh, Gene Michael, the general manager of the Yankees, was there with a walkie-talkie talking to the Yankees' dugout, uh, positioning players from the upper deck. And um, Bill said, Charles, make sure that Mr. Michaels gets plenty of concession service. So we got every concessionaire coming up and blocking uh, Michael's view of the field. Then the, the the following day, I was asked if I could locate the walkie-talkies in the visitor's clubhouse, which we managed to do and bring upstairs and brought in somebody from Zenith and got the crystal settings, put the walkie-talkies back, then had a big Bearcat scanner so we could listen in on what was going on over the walkie-talkies. That was some of the monkey business we did behind the scenes. There's all kinds of monkey business. Um, I, but I got I to gotta circle around the shorts, even though you were in the room at least, I guess, around, around those. The, the, those yeah, but, a couple of games, right? What, do you have any idea as to how that sort of evolved? Those, it was only for two yeah, games, the, right? No, I think it, was, it, was, it could have been for more games than that. But the new White Sox uniforms were the ideas of Mary Frances Beck, Bill's wife. And I remember sitting uh, at the executive house one night with Roland Heeman and Bill, and we kept getting the people at Wilson Sporting Goods out of bed at all hours of the night and talking and talking and talking on what we wanted. And every time we would get it to the where we wanted, someone would come up with a different idea of the look of the uniform. So uh, away we went with a different look. But um, yeah, that that was the the look of the White Sox for the 1976 season. Yeah, those Short. were very stylized, very sort of a uh, uh, bold uh, navy blue and white, uh, uh, almost contrasting. You know, the helmets and all that kind of stuff. But the shorts really stood out. I you know, it's just it actually you know it's it's interesting you look at the pictures of them and you and you see i'm trying to remember like some of the players who uh, chet lemon maybe had a pair on or something i dick kessinger perhaps uh um uh there's um uh it 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 seems so outlandish yet it actually seems so logical and practical at the same time and um well tim it was it was it really wasn't new to baseball but it was new to the major leagues I think the idea was sparked out in California. They were called the Los Angeles Stars. And if one goes back into their history books, you'll find that they played in shorts. Now, if they were a semi-pro league or what league they were in, I'm not sure. But I believe that could have been the genesis of the idea and then bringing it to the major leagues in a professional manner. Just, that's really interesting. All right, so tell me then how the Chicago Sting comes into your radar. You're obviously making a big uh, a big splash in 
the third largest market in the country with the White Sox, and perhaps still even in in the shadows of the Cubs, or was it still was it relatively equal? I mean, you know, obviously the South Side is South Siders have always had a uh, uh, have always been kind of um, I don't want to say in the shadows of the Cubs, right? But always uh, the you know the they they oftentimes have gotten or have gotten short shrift, despite even being better on the field and and well better run sometimes than the Cubs and stuff. But but clearly you're you're making a mark as one of the you know one of the top guys in the in the Sox organization. I'm I'm guessing Lee Stern noticed that you were well, making some hay. Lee Stern was an investor in the White Sox and still is to this date. Lee would come into the farm office every game he attended and would want to know what's going on in the farm system. And we talked and talked, and I knew he was soccer, and he brought a fellow to a game one night by the name of Clive Toy. And uh, was telling me about on this very show, for sure. Really? Yeah, yeah. Clive was a neat guy. Neat guy. And um, rumors started circulating that the socks were going to be sold uh, to Ed DeBartolo, Sr., and uh, Lee came in and he says, hey, kid, I don't know if you're going to have a job when this team is sold, but you've got one with me if you want to come and try something different. So uh, I did. I went with the Sting as director of operations and worked my way up to president. What year was this that you joined the Sting? Uh, 19, late 1979. Matter of fact, Lee was in London, and he hired me over the telephone, and the team was playing in Mexico. And and what was your knowledge about soccer and the NASL and and the Sting in particular before saying yes to this job? Probably zero. Again, I took the approach that, hey, um, you still got to do all the right stuff off the field, but it's a different game on the field. And um, we went in and uh, cleaned house within six months and got people that wanted to work that were willing to turn that franchise around. And a lot of the people we brought in went on to very prominent positions in professional sports. Well, yeah, you're also coming in at a time. So it's just, you know, for background, and some of our soccer purists will sort of uh, know some of the story, but. You know, the Chicago Sting and the North American Soccer League, um, uh, I, I think by most accounts, I think Lee would say the same thing. We've been we've been on and off with him to get uh, on this show. He's had some health issues over the last couple of years and stuff, but hopefully, uh, you know, hope uh, reigns supreme to to have him on. But we've, we've talked to others about the Sting, Willie Roy and and, and, and uh, uh, Mike Conklin and some others, you know, on the, the, the press side. Um, the, the, the team, I guess, could be characterized as – the boom was really starting to hit in the NASL, 1977, 78 with the Cosmos in particular. Um, probably, I guess, perceived to be underperforming uh, relative to their size and stature in the market uh, or in the United States, obviously Chicago, uh, and an owner in Lee Stern who had been there for, geez, I guess he was at it since 75 or so, putting money and and and, and uh, uh, publicity uh, and, and really sort of being... Uh, perhaps one of the the movers and shakers in the league, and and the, and the city really, for whatever reasons, really wasn't responding, um, despite some really good play and, frankly, a budding rivalry with those very said Cosmos, uh, which the league thought was very healthy. Well, um, 
Willie Roy was a big factor in getting Lee to open up the purse strings for players. They had some good players, don't get me wrong. But Willie wanted to put together his type of team, which was a primarily all-German team that was supplemented with some other English players and Argentinians and Haitians. But I got to give Willie credit for putting that team together. Uh, he, he did a marvelous job. As far as drawing people, um, I brought in a, a psychologist, if you would, and wanted to get a feel for who the audience could be, should be. And the way the story went, uh, I learned that when a father comes home to talk with his son, he was only talking baseball, football, and hockey. And he wasn't talking soccer. So the light went off and said, we've got to start targeting our advertising and marketing to females. Maybe that's where soccer moms came from. Uh, but uh, we started drawing our female demographic went up to 48% that started attending games. Uh, I was asked one day, how come I'm not buying advertising in the different ethnic communities? I said, those folks are already coming. They know about the team. So let's start marketing in a different direction. And uh, we brought on some brand new sponsors that were sort of in second and third place in the city. And um, we started growing. We started playing. And uh, 1980 was a learning curve. And then 1981, it all came together with a new front office, great team, and um, just came together well. Uh, just uh, and, and came together well. You, you're you're burying the lead because they won the soccer ball in Toronto that year, 1981, and yours truly was at that game as a Cosmos fan and was just stunned at the fact that uh, the Sting would uh, defeat the mighty Cosmos. But I digress. Tell me though about. Uh, it seems to me that part of your challenge was where the team was playing because you had to share. I mean, there was the Comiskey and. Wrigley Field thing, right, where you had half the season in each of those places, and then Soldier yeah. Field for a couple of years. Describe that to me, because I think that was also part of the, maybe the sort of traditional sports fan uh, confusion as to just where the hell they're playing this year. There, there was no problem getting a lease to play at Comiskey Park. Uh, with Lee on the board of directors there, uh, they, Comiskey Park was accommodating. If the truth be told, I don't believe that the Cubs really wanted us on their field. But through some political connections, we'll say, uh, they opened the door to us for an unlimited amount of games. And then when they saw us selling out games at Wrigley Field and what it brought in in parking and concession revenue, uh, we got to ride in the front seat of the car, so to speak, as opposed to being a redheaded uh, stepchild and sitting in the back seat. So we proved ourselves that we were a viable sports entity in Chicago. Was was there a preference in the league in, in the uh, in the team office as to which facility was was a better environment, or did you feel perhaps that you were alienating fans, or you think maybe you were regionalizing? And, and and getting the most out of the market by being in two venues. I, I, I believe Wrigley Field was a 
very comfortable fit because of the size and dimensions of the field. Uh, Comiskey Park, if memory serves me right, we didn't have to play on as much of the uh, infield, but still the fans were uh, a distance away in the uh, right center field area was almost midfield. So uh, they came and we put on a show for the fans when they would come in, everything from elephants to dancing uh uh, let me see the honeybees. We had a, a mascot and giveaways. So we, we had to do a lot of hustling with the team. All right. What's this? 417 helmets. My goodness. Well, you've heard me talk about 417helmets.com collectible helmets and more on this uh, very show uh, fairly often. Our pal Judd Lasher down in uh, southwest Missouri, I think in the Springfield, Missouri area, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, what is it? 417helmets.com. Well, first, if you dig uh, all of our great football stories and episodes of the past and you'd like to commemorate some of them in mini helmet form, really cool, sort of literal high quality professionally, you know, made materials, but in a mini format that you could put on your desk or uh, put on your uh, in your bookshelf or whatever it is. Uh, and just about every league that's ever existed, save from the NFL. Uh, we're talking XFL, uh, old versions of uh, the WFL. Remember the World Football League? How about various teams, both current and past in the Canadian Football League? But also NCAA teams of your and NAIA college football teams of your all of them and many, many, many more available for you at 417helmets.com. But oh, that's not it. That's not it, friends. There's plenty more to be had. How about mini baseball helmets? Yeah, uh, a whole bunch in the Negro Leagues and yes, officially licensed by the Negro League Hall of Fame. You can get a bunch and they're making more uh, all the time. Um and by the way, custom helmets can be made too, both of the baseball and the football variety. You got your uh, your business, uh, maybe a promotional thing you want to do for your company, uh, perhaps your organization, you want to raise some funds, all that kind of stuff. Great custom approaches to both mini football and mini baseball helmets can be made uh, at uh, your uh, command uh, for uh, uh, you to enjoy and to sell or resell or give away all of that and more. That's the more part at 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, we've got a promo code for you too, for whatever you purchase, all of them, all of your purchases, 10% off all of those uh, when you use the promo code GOODSEATS. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases at 417helmets.com. Thanks, Judd. And uh, thank you all for listening and trying them out. And now back to our conversation. What was your um, impression of the North American Soccer League? Uh, I know everything was new to you, but obviously you're going into not only a new sport, but a new league and organization that the Sting was part of. Um, you know, I, I, not to put words in your mouth, but, you know, the late 70s, 
early 80s. I mean, I would say it was cresting maybe in the late 70s, and you were kind of getting involved with the Sting maybe sort of at the tail end of that crest, and then, then maybe the, the Sting were kind of, they kind of outperformed just near when things were starting to fall apart. I, I think, Tim, you, you can divide the two things on the field and off the field. You had a lot of committed ownership in the league. You had the quality of people like Lamar Hunt. You had Nelson Scalbania up in Calgary. You had the solid ownership up in Edmonton. Both of those guys wound up with NHL franchises. You had Lipton T involved in the league. Uh, of course, Warner Brothers was involved with the Cosmos. You had some wealthy owners out on the West Coast. In my opinion, and they had great marketing folks in New York with the league office, but in my opinion, what hurt the league was the owners overspending in an attempt to emulate the NA, uh, excuse me, the uh, National Football League. They were trying to emulate that, and they were trying to do it too quick, and they were throwing a lot of money at it. And not too many clubs were earning money at the time. Got Tampa Bay was an outstanding franchise. Yeah, including though, to your point, uh, uh, the uh, the the rapid expansion to what was it, twenty four teams by uh, by seventy eight, seventy nine. Um, but I, we've done a lot of of reverse sort of history, sort of trying to obviously clearly a. a a major point in the inflection and then the deflation of that, but emulating sort of that um, coast to coast kind of national uh, footprint, maybe a little before the league itself was too ready for that. That, that sounds right out of the NFL playbook. That, that could be a possibility. They had good ownership out on the West coast, San Diego, uh, we had San Jose was drawing well. Vancouver was outstanding up in Canada. Great ownership up there. And um, Los Angeles, did they have one or two teams at the time? Um, yeah, I'm there were the Aztecs. And for a while, there was the California Surf in Orange County. That, that was it. That was it. Um, went out on the West Coast several times to watch the team play. But um, we televised games, too. Now, we looked at televising games in Chicago as marketing. We would take marketing money, buy airtime on WGN. I said, Lee, if we're going to go for it, let's do it right. Let's get with a sports network that knows sports. And WGN at the time was the place to be. And it was expensive. But this was this was home a, games you were talking about? Road games. Oh, road games. Okay, that makes sense. Because back in the day, that that it wasn't enlightened then to broadcast home home games at the home market, right? No, no. And we we also brought in a Spanish network on radio, and uh, we found a two hundred thousand watt FM station, so we could speak to the world. WXFM. And uh, matter of fact, we brought in a fellow from WCFL by the name of Chuck Swirsky to do the games our first year. And Chuck's gone on to greatness. He was a great, great broadcaster. And uh, we, we tried to do the right things. And we had a great chemistry of front office people, just 
and, and, and I believe in that chemistry approach that the team on the field is the team on the field and the team off the field has to work with the team on the field. And we had that cohesiveness. And I believe that was uh, a great breeding for success. But but I, I get the sense, though, that, you know, if I, if I remember the 1980 season, <clears throat> both NASL and, and Sting-wise, I mean, Sting, a couple of things. Number one, the Sting always seemed to have the New York Cosmos' number, right? It, talk about a rivalry. It was very strong rivalry. And more often than not, the Sting would, no matter how well or uh, the Sting were performing in a particular season, um, would uh, always seem to have the Cosmos number. Um, so so well, that, that was also pretty good. But I guess the question really is, you were still not really drawing that well, given even though I think you won a division championship in 80 and and clearly were on the path to something great in 81. But I, I, I got to think there was a level of, of, of frustration that fans were still not sort of coming out at some of the, the larger numbers that you were seeing in some of those markets you just talked about. Well, I Chicago's think, a tough market for sure, so I'll give you that. Oh, sure. The 1980-81 indoor season, we were playing to crowds of 17, 18, and 19,000 for indoor games. Yeah, let, let's started, talk about that because th this actually th that's the interesting that's the prelude because that was the season before the 1981 outdoor NASL title, right? This is the indoor yes. season. Okay, and this was, just for our audience, this was the, um, I mean, obviously, nostalgists know that the NASL experimented with the indoor game as early as 71, 72 with tournaments and stuff, but this was like the first real uh, attempt to go head-to-head, -head, if you will, with the MISL, which had uh, kind of pioneered the game anew in 78, 79. Uh, this is the NASL version of the Sting playing at Chicago Stadium, right, indoors. That's that's right. It was a brand new experience, and Bill Wirtz was a great partner to work with. Bill was smart enough to see the advantages of double headers in his building, parking, concessions, and he was a true Chicago sportsman. And um, we played a lot of matinee games in the Chicago stadium. Um, let's face it; at the time, the stadium was not in the most uh, popular area in town. So by playing matinee games, we felt that families would feel safer in coming. And that worked out perfect with the Blackhawks who would play on Sunday nights. And it, kids could come to the matinee games and then get home in time uh, to go to school on Monday. So we, we did that quite a bit too. And matter of fact, um, we were outdrawing the Bulls and the Blackhawks at the time at the Chicago Stadium. Yeah, so d describe a little bit of that because um, that, that that's that was uh, I, clearly if, like, folks like the Atlanta Chiefs, for example, were outdrawing indoors more than they were outdoors. Uh, they were more successful there, um, but this was even a, a level above that because you were outdrawing as St. Louis was in the MISL outdrawing some NBA and NHL teams on their own right as well, selling out that building. Um, but describe that because the Sting were quite quite a phenomenon in the in the Chicago Stadium. And by the way, probably aided and abetted by the fact that the Blackhawks were not doing all that well generally anyway, too. Well, we we um, we took a little bit of the what Bill Vec taught us 
and brought that onto the field at uh, in between halves. And uh, we brought Nancy Faust over. She was playing for us. We found uh, a singer by the name of Wayne Mesmer, and we started singing God Bless America. Uh, we started having marching groups at, at halftime. We had sheep penning. We brought in the chicken from a baseball environment and hung him upside down so he could write on the glass. Uh, we turned it into a fun place to be. Yeah. And, and the media was great too. The media treated us like darlings. Yeah. And, and, um, so I put this in context, right? I mean, the outdoor season, uh, you had won the, you won the central division. You were, you were in the playoffs in 1980 outdoors. You were drawing, I think like 11, almost 12,000 people a game. Um, but indoors you're drawing, you know, some pretty big crowds, um, which obviously bled into the next season after you won the outdoor championship. Um, I got to think this is it's also really important to remember too. not all NASL outdoor teams were playing indoors, right? There had to be a decision made. I, I know the league was championing the idea, but I, I'm curious, when did you and Lee and, and others in the brain trust recognize that, hey, we should try indoors? Well, we started looking we started looking at the economics of it and uh, we, we, we we had the players under contract and Willie said, let's go for it. It's another way of keeping these guys in condition and um, let's play. Let's see what can happen. So we, we went for it. Were you surprised at how quickly it took the indoor game uh, versus that of outdoor? Not really. Uh, we called it, and it's an old cliche, indoor pinball, the excitement, the action, by now, the momentum that we were picking up from the 1980 season in creating awareness for the sting was beginning to crest. We were on radio, we were on Spanish radio, we were on television, we changed uh, advertising agencies, uh, we took a different approach to our marketing. Uh, we brought in some outside uh, ticket sales people, and we were we were picking up momentum. It, it, it was a, a learning curve for all of us, meaning the new folks on the front office team. But then we started pulling it all together, and uh, it started clicking. So describe 1981 outdoors, because it seems like you had some rolling thunder there. Um, and I'm, I'm also curious as to how your – managing the of selling if you will two different sports in two different seasons was this a boon having a year-round kind of thing or was it exhausting and uh divisive and challenging because they were kind of two different products and times of times of times of the year we started selling the 1981 season during the 1980-81 indoor season while people were exciting and we did the same thing uh, during while we were riding high in the outdoor season in 81 towards the end of that season and going into the playoffs we started selling the indoor so we kept catching the wave so to speak from one season to the other and just rode it 
Describe to me the 81 uh, outdoor championship uh, parade in Chicago, because I think given I'm sure Lee was probably stunned by it. And maybe you as well for having been with the team for a shorter period of time. But as I said earlier, right, this was a team that had been in the league for relatively quite some time, had really not gotten a lot of toehold, at least attendance wise, until fairly recently, right, that indoor season prior and I guess that that magical playoff run that ultimately culminated in the championship in 81. But the whole, I mean, you look at the pictures, I mean, Jane Byrne and the city really came out and celebrated this championship team that I guess had been the first time that Chicago had a champion in anything for a long time. Well, there was uh, an alterman by the name of George Hagopian. Him being Armenian, me being Armenian, he kept coming by and asking what he could do for the sting. And I said, George, I'll let you know when you can do something for me. And that went on for the whole season and uh, really didn't need the political contact downtown. And when we knew that we were going to soccer bowl, this is after we beat San Diego in a shootout had 18,000 walk up and had close to 40,000 at Comiskey Park on a cold, rainy Monday night. George came to me and he says, cousin, are you ready for me to do something to you? I said, yes, George. If we come back from Toronto and win soccer bowl, I want a parade and big party. Long and short of it, the rest is history. George met us at the airport as we were coming in from Toronto and greeted the team. And um, we delegated uh, the relationship to Connie Kowal. And Connie coordinated the parade, the party, and all of the doings that were going on. We give Connie credit for that and making it happen. But, but I, you know, you look at the pictures and stuff. That was a, I mean, I wasn't living in Chicago at the time, but that was significant. That was it was like that was that was major league status that that celebration. Well, there was also another big piece of that to a daily plaza. We had been negotiating with Carl Heinz Granitz, our star player, and there was is he going to stay? Is he going to leave? And we told people that there would also be, along with the parade and everything, a major announcement. And we uh, had Jane Byrne make the announcement that Carl Heinz Granitza had signed a multi-year contract and was going to be a Chicago sting for another three years. So that, that helped, but I'll tell you, uh, it was just one big party and ABC televised the game, although it was on a DB in Chicago and New York, we were upstaged by Love Boat and Fantasy Island, and that's another story onto itself. Yeah, the delayed broadcast of, the, of that game. ABC had really thrown in the towel after two years of, of doing those the, the soccer bowls live. They they went tape delay on that. Well, we we knew the ratings. Rune Arledge was running things at, at that time at the network. And actually, there was a, a sportscaster because uh, WLS was an owned and operated station. And there was a broadcaster there who became a big soccer fan. His name was Tim Weigel. And Tim took the network on during his sports show. How could you delay broadcasting in New York and Chicago? So they were actually going to DB the entire game until Sunday. 
and the compromise and Bern Lindquist who broadcast the game got involved and the compromise was we would get a DB as soon as Love Boat and Fantasy Island was over with, the game would play in the New York and Chicago markets. And the rest of the country got the game on Sunday. Very interesting. Having been at the game, I was not sort of aware of the of the dynamic there. But yes, I, do, I was very much aware of the fact that it was going to be played on a Saturday evening and then uh, and then uh, run in, in tape delay on, on a Sunday. But yeah, for those two markets and... Um, but the radio broadcast uh, was also very popular, too. That was not delayed. No, no. Actually, we carried the game on three different stations. We felt that we had an obligation with our regular partner, uh, XFM, our Spanish station, and WGN came and wanted to take over everything. And we said, where were you folks when we really needed you? But we'll sell you a feed. And uh, they put uh, Roy Leonard on with, uh, was I think it was either Swirsky uh, or Kenny Stern did the game on GN. So uh, we we had three stations broadcasting that game plus ABC. So uh, again, more momentum into the marketplace. All right. So, so when, when does the end of the sting for you come about? How does it come about and how do you make the jump to the MISL? I'm guessing your, your indoor exploits with the sting didn't hurt your appeal to the newly resurfacing Earl Foreman, who is now head of the MISL at this time. Well, Earl called me and he said, look, the league is after me to bring in a deputy director to have someone there in the event I have to leave for whatever reason. And he said, think about it. Just think about it. So I talked to a few friends and I really knew that it was time for other members of the family in the Stern family to get more involved in the day-to-day operation. And I knew that that was going to happen. I got along great with Kenny, Danny, and Jeff, the daughter. It it was great. But I knew that Kenny was the heir apparent to take over the club. So uh, I called Earl and I said, Earl, what do you have in mind? He says, I don't want to leave Lee without a general manager president. I'm going to set up a swap. You for Doug Verb, so he's not left hanging. You let me take care of that end of it. And then we worked out a financial arrangement and uh, the other parts of it. And Earl took it from there, called Lee and worked it out. And they swapped me for Verb. Interesting. I didn't see that on the in the agate of the uh, transactions that day on in the newspaper. But, uh, <laughs> that was that was one that got by a lot of people. Yeah, well, that's why I sort of, uh, sort of uh, jokingly said MISL Mafia because there's a lot of sort of trading of of people behind the scenes, and you know Michael Menchel was sort of part of of that too, and some others I've I've heard of. But okay, so explain to me what you thought you were getting into with the MISL. What was Earl selling you to do? What was your role? And then tell me about Phoenix and the Inferno because that seems like a, just a a crazy story in and of itself. I I think it. First, Earl thought that I was going to come in 
and be a form of marketing guru for the league. And I told him, that's not what I want to do, Earl. My strengths are in marketing, but more in team operations. So he had me on the road five, six days a week visiting franchises and showing the general managers and owners how to strengthen their operations. So like an internal consultant almost. Yeah, pretty much so. And also uh, franchise expansion was was part of it. And uh, just troubleshooting and putting out fires, whatever it took. Whatever it took. And Earl was teaching me, he was negotiating a union contract with John Kerr was his name. Uh, was the head of their union, sure. and I was I was actually putting out fires between owners too. Earl didn't want to get in the middle of owner fights, so I would fly in and break up arguments between owners. And the most memorable one was in Baltimore between Bernie Roden and Bart Wallstein. They were arguing over camera positions for an indoor game. Well, Wallstein, well, the Wallstein game was, was the Chicago, uh, the uh, Cleveland Force guy, right? The, the game was already going to be broadcast on the USA with uh, Al Troutwig. Yeah, and Kyle Roach Jr., another another guest of ours. We want to get Al, by the way. There you go. That's, uh, you know, if you have any uh, inroads to Al Troutwig, we, we'd certainly uh, appreciate That's That's a Michael call. I okay. think Michael can find Al for I'll you. Ask him. Anyways, my, I flew in, and I said, guys, look, our contract with USA says that they get prime camera positions. Why don't you guys each take a feed and save yourself a lot of money? No, I want people in Baltimore to see what I want them to see. And Bart says, I want people in Cleveland to see what I want them to see. So I said, okay, guys, this is how it's going to work. And it's going to work very simply. USA is going to pick out their camera positions. I'm going to flip a coin and then we're going to go back and forth for what camera positions are left. It was that simple, just flipping a coin between the two owners. So is that the garden variety version of the, of the spats that they had, or was it, was it even more so, like the direction of the league and, and that, that kind of stuff? Well, the direction of the league, there was a board of directors and probably one of the more influential guys who wound up becoming commissioner of the league was a good intermediary for Earl, and that was Bill Kentling in Wichita. Sure. Bill, Bill, Bill got along well with all the owners, and he had Earl's uh, ear. So I look at Kentling as a guy that uh, quelled any storms before they uh, became tornadoes. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, or... Uh, fires into infernos. Uh, So, okay. So explain the Phoenix Inferno story and situation, because um, this sounds like a a humdinger. Uh, It may be perhaps, I don't know, maybe the more notable example of what you're trying to do is literally try to, and figuratively, I guess, put out fires. I I get a phone call from Earl. I, I forget where I was. And he says, meet me in Chicago. We're going to Phoenix. I said, how long should I pack a bag? He says, oh, maybe a week or two. Okay. I meet Earl in Chicago. And as we're flying out to Phoenix, he explains that the following day, the Inferno are going to declare 
Chapter 11 bankruptcy and padlocked the franchise. Do you, do you remember what year this was? This was what, 82? 82, late 82. And uh, I said, okay, keep talking. He says, we've secured an attorney out there by the name of John Dawson, who was about six foot six, 380 pound guy, big guy. And I'll tell you a story about that later. Anyways, um, he said, our attorney is going to keep the team out of bankruptcy. The league is going to stand behind the team and make sure the bills get paid. You are going to be appointed trustee of the franchise in bankruptcy. You're going to run this team while we're, we're there. Well, that evening when we arrived in uh, Phoenix, we had dinner with Joe Jr., Garagiola, and Joe Sr. Now, Joe, oh, Joe, Joe Garagiola of, of baseball fame and then later baseball broadcasting fame. He and his son? It, yes. Okay. His son was an attorney in Phoenix. And father and Stan Musial had just sold their interests in the uh, St. Louis indoor team. Of course, the Steamers. They were part of the original ownership group when they came as an expansion franchise. Yeah. Very good. So we're going to have dinner with them and explain the circumstances and if they would consider putting a group together and buying the team that was dinner that evening and then my job was to go in and run the day-to-day figure out what was going on where the bodies were buried and how we could generate some revenue well the best thing we had going for us besides the leagues backing me up if need be it was a $250,000 letter of credit that each team had to put up uh, at the bank. Well, I was drawing down on that letter of credit to pay salaries, travel. Uh, the stadium where we were playing at tried to lock us out. And the federal judge, and this is when I learned the power of a federal judge, said, nope. You guys get federal money to operate this building. This team's going to go in there and play. So we had that was a big hurdle for us, getting into the building to play. This is the old Veterans Memorial the, Coliseum, which is still around today, by the way. Yes, yes. Um, so we went hand-to-mouth with that franchise, hand-to-mouth. There was not an expense that was made without approval coming from me or the uh, – accountant that we had on board. Now that $250,000 letter of credit was secured with a bunch of phony real estate documents. The real estate never existed. So the bank got flim flammed, but still was on the hook for the 250,000. Well, the team was actually owned once you drill down by a group of Cuban drug dealers in Miami. And we found out about this as we got into the process. Uh, matter of fact, the team, the team president came out of Miami, Rick Ragone. Uh, oddly enough, his brakes went out one evening and him and a family member were killed in a car crash in Phoenix. And this, uh, that, that, was in, any- that was in December of 1981, around the time that you're talking about this bankruptcy situation. 
uh, could well have been. But yes, Rick Ragone was killed. A guy by the name of Irv Berger came in from California. And Irv was the guy that put together all of the paperwork. Well, apparently there was money being filtered in from Miami to keep that franchise afloat. Well, the the fellows in Miami secured counsel in Phoenix, and they were hauling me into court and wondering why I wasn't selling assets to pay bills. And the federal judge asked me, he says, Charlie, how, how come you're not selling assets? And uh, I said, Your Honor, would you buy a car with only three wheels and no headlights? He says, are you trying to tell me that the franchise is worth more in total than in parts? I said, yes, sir. I believe we can find an owner that will buy the team out of bankruptcy, pay the secured creditors, and the city of Phoenix will have an indoor soccer team. And um, we started scouring all over Phoenix and interviewing different people that were potential owners. And frankly, the only solid group that was on the radar was the Garajola group. And But the night before we're going into a bankruptcy hearing, uh, I get a phone call from an attorney representing a Bruce Merrill, who owned the cable station there, and said, Mr. Merrill would like to put in an offer for the team. Sure, sure. Bring it to the courthouse tomorrow. Well, Mr. Merrill's offer was twenty-five dollars or $50,000 more than the Gowers Yola group. So by law, I had to present both offers to the court. The judge called a recess, and he got the commissioner on the phone. And he said, we have two offers here, commissioner. Which one of these groups would be approved by your board of directors? And he said, Your Honor, either one of the two groups would be acceptable. Well, under law, the judge had to accept the higher offer from Merrill. And um, I had to keep my lip buttoned. I mean, the Garajolas were the better group. Merrill was just buying programming for his cable station. So uh, that's that story. And then I went out to dinner that evening and tried to help Merrill understand what it took to run a franchise. And he asked me to stay and be president. And I said, Mr. Merrill, that would be highly unethical. Me being a bankruptcy trustee and then you getting the franchise, me staying as president. I said, I will give you several names of fellas that will do a good job for you. And he wound up hiring a guy by the name of Podoleski out of uh, California. And uh, he came in, he changed the name of the team from the Inferno to the Pride. And I think they lasted one or two more seasons, and then the franchise folded. And then I went uh, back to Philadelphia in the league office. What I thought was going to be a couple of weeks turned out to be several months. Interesting. So, so this. Uh, by the way, a quick uh, p- parenthetical on on Podleski. Um, I guess he uh, he was uh, according to what I'm I'm reading here. He was a devout Christian, and he was the guy, the impetus to change the word Inferno to Pride. Um, uh, which correct 
didn't seem to sort of, uh, although I think they did post their best record of the three seasons that they were there. They were 500 that season. But I remember watching an original Inferno game, one or two of them on the old USA Cable Network with the aforementioned Al Troutwick and Kyle Rowe Jr. And I remember back in the day, and this you youngins out there think this is like a, this is commonplace now, but I remember literally waiting for the a goal to be scored for Phoenix because they had those those two fire funnels that would light up with fire <laughs> after the goal. And I was thought that was the craziest thing. And I, I remember seeing those clips in all kinds of promotional stuff years, years afterwards, right? Cause it was, it was, it was, it was like dramatic and, and emblematic, frankly, of the uh, showbiz style that the MISL marketing wizards like the lie wikis and, and yourself and others were trying to bring into the, uh, into the, uh, into this league. That's, what it took you had to sell sizzle if your team wasn't the best team on the field and create an atmosphere that the minor league general managers are doing today and that's how we sold it and if you won it was a bonus and they also had the best bumper stickers in the league i think our balls are off the wall but i digress um but okay quick uh, let me wrap up a piece or two here and then i'll sort of we'll do a cul-de-sac to finally get let you go back to your 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 actual life here but um i so this rogon was 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 killed in a car crash coincidentally in late 1981 okay i am I'm, I'm reading into this and I, I intimated it earlier but do you think there was any connection with his passing and his untimely death uh, with the, the shenanigans of the ownership of this group. And by the way, how did he even get to this point? I mean, where was the due diligence, I guess, uh, in the league office when they were getting the owners in the first place? I franchise? have n- no idea. That was what we call in my vernacular BC before Charlie. I was still having a great time with the Sting in 1981 and really didn't keep up with the uh, – MISL that much. But uh, Ragone, I understand uh, from talking with Michael, was part of the Miami Dolphins, and that's where the connection started with the uh, potential owners in Phoenix. I see. Okay. Now, who, who did the due diligence? I have no idea. I'm sorry, Tim. No, nothing to be sorry about, but it's intriguing nonetheless, for sure, right? And uh, this is our first uh, a touch of the Phoenix Inferno slash Pride franchise. Um, so uh, tell me then the rest of your MISL career. You said for a few more months. Um, yeah, yeah, I went back and uh, Earl had me do a feasibility study. He said Philadelphia is not the place for the league office. I said, where do you want to go? He said, go to New York first. So I went to New York, did a feasibility study, put an action plan together to shut down the offices in Philadelphia on Friday and reopen in New York City in the Empire State Building on Monday. He had all the lease papers and everything, and all Earl had to do was sign it. He said, you know what? Let's now look at Washington, D.C. I want to go to Washington, D.C. because that's closer to home for me in Potomac. Keep in mind that uh, we had just sold our house in Chicago, uh, moved everything in the storage with two young kids, and the family was in a small rental home in Richmond, Virginia, and I was commuting from Philly to Richmond. And Earl said, 
yeah, Washington is it. So I went to Washington and I found a place across the street from one of Earl's favorite restaurants, his old law office that his wife had told me about. They were moving and it was a sweet deal on the rent. So I said, Earl, perfect. We can do the same scenario, open up uh, in D.C. He says, I like that. Well, I went home and went house hunting. And uh, my wife found a beautiful home up in uh, outside of D.C., uh, Ravinia, I think it was, and um, came back to the office. And Earl said, you know, I'm going to put this whole thing on hold on moving the league office. And I said, Earl, my family is worth far more to me than this job. When you figure out where you're going to put the league office, call me. I gave him my keys, my travel card, got a plane ticket, and went home to Richmond. And that was it for the MISL for you, right? Yes. In between in there, uh, there I don't know if if you heard about it, something called Team America. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, were you part of that right. too? Uh, sort of. I was the guy that had to blow it up. Okay. All right. So, all right. Let, let's end with this because, and then, and then we'll uh, certainly talk about because, okay, you cannot escape without, with teasing that. Uh, for our audience, set this up. This is um, 1983, right? The NASL season's clearly... Yeah. Yes, it's on its way out, and but there was this sort of bright idea that, um, and not a bad idea actually, a creative one for sure, in trying to get the United States national team uh, either better known or better prepared or both for what was to be the upcoming cycle for 1986's World Cup, uh, newly moved to Mexico. Um, the idea was what to create a pro franchise consisting solely of U.S. national team players to play in the uh, not so ra- I guess rapidly declining North American Soccer League. Is that right? That is true. We worked out all the details with our owners. Uh, the biggest concern was uh, disability insurance if these guys were going to get hurt and who was going to pay their contracts. It's down to economics. And then Earl Foreman and Marv Samuels met, shook on the deal, and everything was in place. And then they were going to have another meeting in New York with the marketing people, the attorneys. Earl called me up the day before that meeting. He said, I've changed my mind. I don't want anything to do with nasal. I said, Earl, we, we shook hands. I know all those people. He said, go to New York and blow it up. I said, Earl, I got to think about this. I know all those people. I went to New York, sat at the table, and I said, guys, before we start, MISL is pulling out of the deal for reasons I can't explain. This is something that Mr. Samuels needs to discuss with Mr. Foreman. These guys just looked at me. These are guys that I did business with for several years. And I said, guys, I'm sorry. That's all I can say. And that was the end of Team America as far so, as the uh, MISL was concerned. All right. So let me back up for a second. So so what was the premise? What was the, what was the discussion about 
So the the the, the team had existed for eighty three, and this was Earl and or the MISL coming in to maybe help take it on or support it for eighty four. Supp- supplement supplement the team with MISL players. Ah, got it. Not ownership, but players or both. Uh, to my knowledge, it was going to be just players, but there were a lot of details involved in getting the players to uh, the team. Interesting. And and, and what, this was during the course of the 1983 outdoor season, or was this, was this before the season actually began? Because the team only lasted one season, right? I think it was early 1983. Right. Early 83 as they were getting ready. But uh, that was and I started seeing a side of Mr. Foreman that I had been told about. And then when the other thing happened about moving the franchise, I mean, the league office, I said, enough is enough. I it's this isn't my style. So I just said goodbye. Went home to Richmond, Virginia. We had just got through putting uh, the uh, MISL All-Star Game together uh, on CBS. John Tesh, matter of fact, did the game with Al Troutwig. And I just wanted to watch that game. I was involved with Michael and putting it all together. And I said to my wife, I don't want any phone calls from anyone till Monday. So phone call started. How could you give this up? How could you give this up? And I had a standard answer, Tim, that I'll share with you. My family and friends are more important to me. And so 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 what it, so that was essentially the end of your roaming sports career? Is that fair to say? Um on a professional sense, yes. Then I took part of the eighty three year off i had some friends that were in the insurance business that asked me to come on board as a consultant to see if we could develop some insurance plans for sports and then after that a benefactor from the university of richmond who had owned the hockey team called me and said look we would like for you to come on out we're going to give you a title out there at the university and we want you to fix the athletic department. So that got me there. And then after that stint at the University of Richmond, I got into the fairs and expositions business for 10 years. And that's so and that's also interesting, too, from a career perspective, right? Because, you know, I, I um, as we sort of kind of wind up and, and I'm sure we will probably have a part two at some point to get to some more granulars on some of these other stories. We didn't even talk about telling the Russa and the white side, a lot of so many other things we could get to, but um, it does seem to me that uh, there is a certain dynamic that one has to have in uh, his or her mind uh, getting into, into pro sports. Now, obviously it's a different era back then versus today. Um, but uh, you're describing, and I don't know if this is exactly how it played out, but I, I wouldn't, I, I, it sounds happy-go-lucky to me, but I'm sure it's a lot more than that, right? Because it's the proverbial one door closes and another one opens. But I think there also is a leap of faith, probably, if I can discern, right? That you have to kind of just believe that things are going to kind of work out and, and, and you're following your passions. And Frankly, what you just described over the last hour and a half is a lot of that, right? A friend of this said this, and I'm really interested in that over there. And and 
And the stuff sort of just kind of, I don't want to say magically happens. I'm sure it was more complicated than that. But, you know, unless you have that sort of belief set, I think it's got to be very hard versus, say, trying to plan this. Because clearly your career path is not nothing you could ever plan for, right? Correct. Correct. It was, like you said, one door closed, another one opened. And the right place, right time, working with the right people, getting guidance from some people. And there was a lot of interviews in between for other jobs that I just said no to me. I just said no. I I I, I want to settle down now after running around the world. And uh, that was it. All right. Last question then. Um, because of a lot of the, obviously, the, the, the stuff that, you know, a lot of this stuff is is sort of gets forgotten. I mean, the shorts in in the White Sox, right? If you're not a big fan of them, you wouldn't have known about that or or some of the craziness of, of the VEC ownership and stuff. But certainly when you're talking about a league and a team or leagues and teams that don't exist anymore, right, that's even harder to sustain memories of. Um, would you, I guess, uh, this is kind of a silly question, but would you have done anything differently? Like, would you have gone to maybe maybe more stuck with the more, shall we say, major established sports? Would you have explored another market? Would you have thought about other things besides sports in the early part of your career? Um, or or would you not have changed a thing and, and reveled in all the memories and, and the learnings that you got on the, on the job, so to speak? I would have probably delved into being a more patient individual, if anything, as opposed to too spontaneous in reacting to a job offer, maybe thinking it through a little bit more thoroughly, doing more due diligence. And, and that's a 74-year-old man talking now. I was young, cocky, and just was going for the big brass rings all the time. But you're also hustling, right? I mean, in a good way, right? I mean, as we've learned with many, many interviews and conversations, some some originalists like like Dennis Murphy, the original hustler, so we say in sports, maybe Gary Davidson too. Um, there's a bit of um, there's probably what I call it. I wouldn't call it. Um, there's an allure, right? There's an attraction. There's there's an excitement. There's a not sure how this is going to play out. There's there's this sports and entertainment thing right the, if you're, if you're young and single or, or or at least young and 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 um eager uh and interested in in any of those realms and dynamics um this almost seems like a catnip these leagues and well, these people uh, i i it'd be hard for me to avoid it when 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 i when i talk with young people that want to go into the professional sports arena the first question I ask, what was your aha moment that said, this is what I want to do? And I listen to what that aha moment is uh, to see if they really want to do it or is it the bright lights that's attracting them? Uh, I remember my aha moment was in 1960 playing in a little league football game at halftime at the Detroit Lions game with 50,000 people in the stands. And I said, wow, would it be great to be part of this? That was my aha moment. And you, and you talk to kids today and you want to know, what do you want to do? What do you really want to do? Because you got to pay your dues in this business. 
to to get there today. There's just so many people that want to get involved in professional sports. And I try to steer a lot of these young people towards colleges and universities uh, for a pro sports career. I think it's more stable than some of the sports. Today, major league sports, uh, there's a lot of pressure up there to win and make money. Yeah, a lot of it is a business for sure, right? And, and, and it's yes. always been a business, right? But but perhaps even more so, I mean, to the point where like private equity and and multiple teams and leagues ownerships, right, which was verboten for so many years, right? You can't own a, a, a team in two different leagues. Um, you know, a, a fan ownership and and just the sheer gargantuan sizes of these stadiums and 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 the 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 the, the 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 cities that get shaken down for the I mean the it just it seems like the stakes are ever higher and and I don't, I'm not old man yelling at the clouds here, uh, but but there is something I don't know that feels like we're losing in in the realm of pro sports and yeah Lord knows there's lots of sort of early stage you know starter type sports that are you know no different than the 70s and 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 that kind of stuff but the money. And the business and the money again uh, just seems to be like first and second and third before maybe the sport and the the joy of all of it. I I don't know. Maybe do you feel similarly, or or am I just being yeah, Tim, naive? No, 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 no. Let's 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 put it. Sports has changed with the times. Uh, the times are running with digital faster, the bigger and better. Uh, Visions are coming into the game. You go back to Mr. Wrigley and Mr. Yawkey, they thought that it was the civic thing to do to lose a million or two a year to have a sports teams in either Chicago or New York. But uh, now there's tax advantages. There's an uh, in-house attorney with every franchise. It's big business. All right, there you go. Uh, you could not uh, find a more perfect guest for this um, this little niche of a show. Uh, Charlie is uh, uh, not only just uh, tremendous, uh, full of the great stories, uh, a raconteur, great, great uh, memories, uh, and um, sharp memories at that, and uh, probably so much more to uh, to unearth. Perhaps we'll have Charlie back to uh, do a round two and, and get into some other. Uh, some other fun and nooks and crannies that maybe even he forgot uh, after I do some more research. Um, we uh, appreciate uh, your listening, of course. Uh, this is uh, what we like to do for you every week. Uh, if there are topics that you're interested in and uh, uh, things that uh, you uh, have questions about that you think we can give you an answer to or all that kind of stuff, you can send us email by all means. And we're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, that also gives you a tip that the uh, website uh, where all of our uh, previous episodes and all of our episodes to come, we just like to store them all there in one convenient place so that like if you've got a friend and, and you want to tip them off to the show and just give them a little sampler platter without uh, forcing them to uh, <laughs> add us to their feed or frankly have to explain what the heck a podcast is. <laughs> Trust me, we know that painful process sometimes. Uh, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's the place to go. And um, you will, uh, or whomever that you push towards that website, will find 
all of those episodes with, you know, some great imagery. And if any, if, if our guests have a, a book or a movie or something that they're pushing, uh, convenient links to all that stuff will be there. Uh, it's also the place where you'll find all of our social media feeds, uh, or at least the addresses for such on Twitter, probably our most active platform. We're at, uh, or what's the handle? The handle is at Good Seats Still. That's what it is. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Facebook, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on that website, besides also a, a convenient link to the uh, the email to, uh, as well, if you can't write down the email address, like, like I said before, uh, you can click on a button there and just send us a note directly that way. But you can also subscribe to our little weekly email newsletter. Someday we're going to enhance it, put some more regularity to it, perhaps uh, some news around uh, this genre that we've created for ourselves once the day job settles down. But as long as the current situation exists, uh, it will be largely devoted to this weekly email newsletter that you can just click around on our website and subscribe to. Just give us your email and your name and, and you'll be on the list. Uh, it's kind of just a little uh, uh, update, not update. It's a kind of a little head start uh, to tell you what the episode for the coming week is going to be. And uh, if you want to be on the uh, insiders list to know perhaps a day or maybe just mere hours before we put it on the RSS feed. You can just uh, sign up for that email newsletter and uh, you will get it and uh, you will be in the know. Thank you our uh, to our uh, fine editor uh, extraordinaire uh, by the name of Dr. Jerry Payne uh, down in uh, beautiful Atlanta, Georgia, or, or the nearby vicinity. Uh, we've never really established if he's in the city limits or or somewhere on the outskirts, but uh, regardless, he's in the uh, he's in the metropolitan area for sure. So watch out, lock up your uh, your uh, your your cars and your doors, and keep the kids and the neighbors uh, uh, away from. Um, no, Jerry's Jerry's all good and uh, has been with us since uh, the very start, and uh, we cannot, as he knows, and hopefully you all know, do this show without him. And uh, this week is a prime example of such. Uh, and thank you, of course, for listening. More great stuff coming your way. Stay tuned for it in the weeks ahead. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do so and rate and review us. We appreciate that. That helps us uh, and the algorithm. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. No, talking to you. That's it. Next week. Thank you for listening. See you.